We come to the end of our series of the Ten Commandments. And if there's 10, that means, and we're at the end, that means we're on commandment number 10. Brilliant logic right there. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. If you have a Bible, turn your Bible. It'll also be up on the screen for you. Uh, And then we're also gonna be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, if you wanna turn over there and put a finger in that passage as well. Here's what the 10th commandment says. We read it earlier in our confession of faith. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his 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 ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And turn over to Luke chapter 12 and I'll read beginning in verse 13. Then someone in the crowd said to him, that's to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who'd made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not, but not God's word. All right. Well, the Huffington Post had an article a couple years ago um, that uh, said that talked about uh, our, our sorry state as Americans despite all of our, all of our stuff. It said, Americans today, we own twice as much as our grandparents did 55 years ago. But we don't seem to be any happier because of it. In fact, we are far less happier. Rather than rising levels of well-being and happiness in our country as our economy has increased and strengthened, instead we've seen what? Not a mounting growth of happiness, but a mounting hill, mountain, mountain range of credit card debt, increasing numbers of self-storage units filled with yesterday's fashions and today's goodwill drop-offs. There are, did you actually know this? There are 50, over, still over 50,000 storage unit businesses in the world, in the whole world. 40, over 46,000 of them are in the United States. And this after we have by far, by far, the largest homes in the world. And yet we still, we still fill up storage units because we have just so much stuff. This article from the Huffington Post came to a crescendo in a summary in this way. Our, this is our entire economic system, buy things, Everybody buy, 
It doesn't matter what you buy, just buy. It doesn't matter if you don't have money, just buy. Our entire civilization now rests on the assumption that no matter what else happens, we will all continue to buy lots and lots of things. Buy, 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 buy. And then buy a little more. Don't create or produce or discover. Just buy. Never save. Never invest. Never cut back. Just buy. Buy what you don't need with money you don't have. Buy like you breathe, only more frequently. We are looking at the 10th commandment this morning. And it says, thou shalt not covet. We are a buying-obsessed, possession-obsessed, stuff-obsessed People, because below that we are a covetous, envious, greedy people. What does the word covet mean? You, we hardly ever use the word covet now. It's kind of almost like an old English word. We, we use the word envy far more. And envy is actually quite similar to covetousness. Envy personalizes covetousness. Covetousness refers to more of objects that you desire to possess. Envy is is anger or frustration with other people. Uh, you, You envy or covet other people because of these objects that they possess. But this, this fact is in the Old, in the New Testament, there is a Hebrew word and a Greek word for coveting, and they're actually exactly the same. They're the same word for lust. That the word covet is the same word for lust. The word covet means that you would have a life-dominating, intense craving or desire for something. It's a lust for something, a lust for possessions. It means you're, you're staking your life on having these things, and this is what we, and we want them centrally. You see, it's not bad necessarily just to want something. Like It's okay to look at something and say, man, that would be great to have that. But where it becomes a lust is what comes from the New Testament word epithumia, which is an over-desire, a desire that becomes central in your life. And covetousness is, according to Luke chapter 12, verse 15, is, as it says there, is to make one's life consist in the abundance of possessions. In other words, what that's saying is this. Coveting means to invest the main part of your hopes the main part of your happiness in something, to put your happiness and your hope in the possession of things or the possession of a place in life. That's what it means to covet. That's what it means to covet. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna look at three three points. Here you go, some New Year's alliteration for you. Three R's, ramification, roots, and reversal of coveting. There's your points for those of you who like a skeleton. That's what we're looking at this morning. First, the ramifications of coveting. God put it in his law for a reason. And as we looked at the beginning of this series, God has given us his law so that you might be free and so that you might enjoy his love and love him better. There are ramifications when you, for your life, your life breaks when you don't keep God's law. God has put it there because he knows what's best for you. And the ramifications of coveting can go, can go deep into your life. Coveting, for instance, coveting makes us miserable. Coveting will make you absolutely miserable. Joseph Epstein, who's a, a Jewish author, not a believer, but he wrote, he's writing a, a series of books on the seven deadly sins. And he wrote a book, his first one was on envy. And he writes on the very first page of that book, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. 
He goes on and says, every other sin has at least its fleeting joys, gluttony and lust. Even sloth has its pleasures. But envy is nothing to be jealous of. Envy sucks the joy out of your lives. You're unable to enjoy what you have because of comparison. I want to give you an illustration of envy and covetousness from the Old Testament. Actually, I'm thinking of this in large part because of where we spent so much of this year where we looked at the life of David. And so much of the life of David and looking at First and Second Samuel is the transition from Saul to David. And in fact, they're being compared in many ways by the author of First and Second Samuel. And the picture of envy and covetousness is seen there in Saul. Why did Saul spend so much of his life seeking after David's life because he was envious of him. Saul was the king. And what we see in 1 Samuel is this, is after David has defeated Goliath and after Saul has then led the armies of Israel out with David as one of his commanders, they've gone out and they've had great battles and they're coming back into the city and there's a song, a little ditty that the women of the city sing. And what do they say? Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And it's from that moment on that things go very badly in the relationship between Saul and David. It says in, that, in the text in 1 Samuel that when Saul hears this, he was very angry. He makes, the, he makes it all, the celebration all about him. And do you hear that dynamic? The dynamic of covetousness, the dynamic of envy always asks this question, what about me? What about me? In fact, Saul asks this question. He says, when he is anger about this song, this little ditty they're saying about him and about David, he says, what more can he, David, have but the kingdom? Saul can enjoy what he has. Saul has the whole kingdom. He has the, the approval and the applause. He has the success. He's got the power. He's got the riches. But he doesn't have all that David has. The soil of envy is comparison. The soil of envy is comparison. This is why envy perhaps is running wild, right? We have, we have digitized envy. We have made it so that you can be envious of anyone, anywhere. In fact, our whole social media presence often is for the whole point of making other people envious of us. And what we have in our envy is an inordinate desire for what someone else has, right? When, when does the two-year-old want the toy? When you have it. When you have it, when some, when the other child picks it up, envy, coveting makes you a miserable person. It makes you a miserable person. Life is never good enough. What you have is never good enough. It makes you ungrateful, unthankful, constantly wanting more. And frankly, it also makes you a miserable person to be around, doesn't it? I mean, David wasn't exactly thrilled to be around Saul much after this. You are unable to enjoy your life, and frankly, you're also unable to enjoy your neighbor's life, right? The 10th commandment is very much about how you can love your neighbor. Because you can't love your neighbor very well when you're envious of them, when you're constantly longing for all that they have that you don't have because of your resentment of them. You, like Saul, can have everything, and yet you can be miserable because of your covetousness and your enviousness, a couple of years ago, I read about a man who was, um, he'd come from one of the worst hell holes on earth. 
He had been um, in a prison camp in North Korea, the most infamous prison camp in North Korea. It, it, they have it, no acknowledged escape until this particular man escaped from this prison camp. It's a torture camp. It's the most degrading a treatment of humans against other humans that you can find on this planet. And this guy found a way to escape and he made his way to South Korea. And after he made his way to South Korea, after a, various, after a number of years, he was discovered and he actually wrote a book about his escape from the North Korea. And you know what he said in the book? He said this, as horrible as the treatment was in that torture camp, nobody in the camp that I can remember ever committed suicide. But in South Korea, suicide is rampant. We are so awash with prosperity in South Korea that people here are more miserable than the people who are in the worst conditions at that slave camp. Our riches, our covetousness, our enviousness. Man, he's not just describing South Korea. He's describing you and me. We are more miserable than people in slave camps. And this is why we're the most drugged people on the planet. The most drugged people. We have more than any other people group has ever had in the history of our world. And yet we need pharmaceuticals just to get through this life of junk that we've got. Coveting makes you miserable. It also makes you foolish, though. It makes you foolish. Here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. What does he say? Man comes to him. He says, man, would you adjudicate between me and my brother? I want the stuff. I want the inheritance that I'm due. And Jesus says, don't make a judge duty out of me. I'm not gonna sit here and go over your family disputes. But then he warns the man. He goes to the heart of what this man is after. And he says to this man, to the crowd, he says, be on your guard against covetousness. Be on your guard, watch out for it. Because covetousness is insipid, it is quiet, it strikes you, you're not even necessarily sure it's there. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, be on your guard against murder, or be on your guard against adultery. Why? Because adultery doesn't sneak up on you. you no, one, no one has ever like, you know, had somebody naked on a bed in a hotel room and go, how did they get here? That, didn't, that doesn't what, isn't what happens, but this is what happens with covetousness and envy. It sneaks up on us. You know, most pastors will tell you that people will have come in their office and have confessed to them the most egregious, heinous, unbelievable things that they've ever done. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that people have shared with me from their life, things that they have done, things that have been done with them. But I have never had anybody come into my office and confess covetousness. Why is that? Well, because no one thinks they have it. No one thinks they have it. Why? Because it runs on comparison, and you can always find somebody that you are more frugal than. You can always find somebody who is more envious and greedy than you are. They did a study at Boston College a couple of years ago of those who made six figures or more, $100,000 or more. They found that one-third of those in America who make $100,000 said that the $100,000 salary does not meet their needs, their most basic needs. A six-figure salary is not enough. Man, coveting makes you foolish. The Bible talks about money 20 times, and money and possessions 20 times more than it talks about sex. Sex has slain its thousands, but money has slain its tens of thousands. 
It's killing us. Our covetousness, our desperate longing for more, it blinds us and it makes us fools. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives us an example of a man who covet, and he says what? This man is a fool. He's a fool. And a couple of years ago, there was um, a serious event that happened in, in Las Vegas uh, regarding a, a British Airlines flight. It was filled with passengers, and there was something distressing that they found in, right, in the post-mortem of sorts, trying to figure out what, what went wrong. It, this, this plane burst into flames while I was on the tarmac. But in the course of their research, or the studying and investigation as to what was going on, what they found more distressing than the cause of the fire was this. In the study, they found that it, that it took the people an inordinate amount of time to get off the plane. And they asked the question, why? And in their investigation of talking to the people on the plane, they found that everybody on the plane was stopping to get their luggage off of the plane. There is a plane that is on fire with hundreds of gallons of jet fuel and people are stopping in order to get their carry-on bags. Coveting will make you foolish. It will make you very, very, very foolish. Coveting puts you into debt. We are a debt Rattled, rat riddled people. We think we think our nations, our, our our politicians are really bad at handling money. Oh my goodness, our consumer debt, our credit card debt. My goodness, we're no better than they are. Forty six percent of families in America have credit card debts. The average American owns owes fifteen thousand dollars on their credit card, and perhaps a lot more than that after the last couple of weeks. Seventy percent of car purchases are made by going into debts. My goodness, we are a people who've got fifty, seventy, hundred thousand dollars of educational debt. Why? Because our covetousness is driving us. It's making us foolish. It's making us do these foolish, stupid things with our money, our longing for more. And King Saul, he was a fool, wasn't he? He was a fool. Here's a man who has everything that you could possibly want in this world. He has wealth and power and position and fame. He has praise, and yet he squandered it all by spending the majority of his time on the throne doing what? Chasing the one man he is envious of around the desert to kill him. That's a fool. Don't underestimate the destructive power of what, of what envy and covetousness is doing in your life. It was there at the beginning when sin came into the world. Remember in the Garden of Eden, remember what they had? It wasn't just Saul who has this problem, it was Adam and Eve. They had paradise. Again, they had everything. They had everything but one tree. One tree. And the suspicion took root. They said, if I could only have that one thing that I lack, envy ruined a perfect world. Envy and covetousness. If envy made, made being a king not enough for Saul and it made paradise not enough for Adam and Eve, what is envy doing in your life? What is it doing in your life? This is a problem. So we need to get to the root of it. So what's the root? What's the root of coveting? How do we get below the surface to find out why in the world we long for so much stuff all the time, always longing for something more? In the book of 1 Samuel, David enters the scene, before David enters the scene and, and Saul gets inflamed with envy and covetousness, we actually see the heart of Saul's coveting earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Saul is having some interactions with Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, God tells Saul to go destroy the Amalekites army. 
And he, he goes and he makes war against the Amalekite army and against the Amalekite king. And God gives them victory over this, this nation. And, but God had given him this stipulation. Now, when you go and destroy this army and this people, you're to kill everybody and you're not going to take any of the possessions. You're supposed to burn everything down. It's essentially a tithe to the Lord's. And so in 1 Samuel 15, though, Saul keeps part of it to himself. He keeps the king of the Amalekites around. He keeps part of the spoils for himself. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 17, Samuel is coming and he's confronting Saul and for coveting the possessions of the Amalekites and for disobeying God. And here's what he says to Saul. Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the heads of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. What is he saying? Saul, he points to the very heart of why Saul has to keep those possessions, why he has to get those possessions. It's because of how Saul viewed himself. He is an inherently insecure man who believes himself and knows himself to be small, to be small. In other words, Samuel's saying, you covet the rule over another king. You covet the possessions of a king because it is these things that you're looking to in order to save you from your sense of insignificance and insecurity. It's there to save you from your smallness. We covet because of a small view of our lives and of ourselves. We need these things. We pile stuff upon ourselves to try to make ourselves look bigger, to make ourselves feel more secure and more significant in this world. And what you're looking to in order to save yourselves from your insignificance, what you're looking to in order to save yourself, in order to give you security, that thing is your God's. That thing is your God's. Let me see if I can drive this home a little bit more by asking this question. Why do you envy the particular people that you envy. Right, we don't, we don't envy everyone all the time. There, you, what you'll find is you will envy only certain people. For example, I, I have, I, I don't, I've never envied Lionel Messi. I have no desire to be a famous, world-class soccer player. That's never entered my mind. I have no interests. I've never envied him in what's, what, one bit. I've never, envied, I've never envied the great doctors in our church. I've never had any interest in being a doctor. I've, never, I've, I've no, never envied them for that great career that they're in. But you know who I have envied? Other, other pastors in our, in our city whose churches are either bigger than mine or perhaps smaller than mine who have more freedom or whose lives maybe look a little bit better, who have certain personalities and have certain praise, those are the people that I envy. Why does Saul envy David? You know, Samuel's around. Samuel's a big deal in Israel. Why does Saul seem to not have no problem with Samuel? Because Samuel's not a threat to, to, to Saul, but David is. You see, Saul... Saul envies David because David threatens what David Saul really loved. He threatened what assuaged Saul's feeling of insecurity, his sense of smallness. It was David's largesse, the praise of the people that threatened Saul, right? The very question he asks is, what more can he take from me but the whole kingdom? What is it that Saul is looking to to make himself feel secure and significant? The fact that he is king. He's looking to these things, and so he's building things around him that will make himself feel prominent and significant. David's success threatened what's made Saul feel large in his own eyes. That is why we envy those around us. It's the proximity. This is why mommies have envy of other mommies. 
And while you envy people, if you're a teacher, those in administration. And if you're in administration, you envy those who are teachers. And when you, if you're in music, you envy those who have the great gigs. You envy those who are actually have success in the very areas that we are looking to to find our worth and significance. Do you hear that? Here's the point. And here's the heart of why we covet and envy. You covet what you are looking to to give your life meaning and significance and worth. Soccer gives me no significance and worth. That's why I never envy and covet Lionel Messi. But being a great preacher, being somebody whose church is growing, being somebody who is loved and has a public stature, that, man, you put somebody in front of me who's ahead of me in those things, man, my goodness, I wanna tear them down from that throne and I want what they've got. And it's killing us. That same Huffington Post that our article that I referred to earlier looked at and some research showed that the materialistic values say this, that our materialistic values as a country are fueled by deep insecurity. In a 2002 study published in the Journal of Psychology and Marketing found that those who chronically doubt themselves and their own self-worth tend to be those who purchase more objects. Consumerism, which they call the modern religion, tends to capitalize on this insecurity and use it to sell products. Why? Because we're looking to these things to communicate to us that we are worthwhile. If only I had that life, then I would be satisfied. If I only had that in my life, that person, that kind of relationship, then I would be complete. If I only had that object in my life, or that person giving me that praise, then I would know I am worth something. If I only had that, then I would know I have a place in this world. In other words, if you can actually see what you envy, then you might actually be stumbling upon the very thing that is the idol in your life. It will show you what you really love. Who do you envy? And why? It's gonna to reveal to you something about your heart. In other words, your envy, your covetous will reveal to you your idols and your true functional gods. And by the way, covetousness is idolatry. Paul tells us so twice. In Colossians chapter three, verse five, he says this, put to death, therefore, covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, what is an idol? What is, an idol? What is idolatry? Anything that is more important to you and more central to your life than the true God. That's what an idol is. Anything you seek to give you what only the true God can give you. You have heard of a metal detector? Well, perhaps envy and covetousness is your idol detector. It's a sign that can point you directly to the thing that's competing with the true God in your life for your submission and for your life. So what's yours? What do you envy? What do you covet? And what does it say about where your true significance and security lies? All right, we've talked about the destructiveness of envy and coveting. We've looked at the roots. Now let's talk about the, how do we change? What's the reversal? We've talked about this with a number of these commandments, right? You, can't, you haven't actually kept the commandment, not when, you haven't just kept it, when you've begun to keep it, when you haven't been doing the, the wicked things that it commands you not to do. You haven't kept the commandments when you've simply avoided the things it forbids, but it also requires you to begin to do positive things, right? Like stealing. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. You have not begun to cease to be a thief. It is not when you stop thieving from grocery stores, but it's when you, become a, you get a job and you become a generous person. When, when you keep the 10th commandments. What's the reverse of coveting? Don't you wanna be different? 
You don't want to be a covetous person, right? What is the opposite of being a covetous person? It's to be a contented person. We looked at, at Saul earlier. Now let's look at Paul. Philippians chapter four, verse 11 says this. This is what Paul says while he's sitting in jail. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now hear this? You hear that? But what's the opposite of coveting? Contentment. Contentment. Now we hear this, and we hear this, this about the ugliness of coveting, and we go, yeah, pastor, you're right. Especially in a week like this week, right? When you looked around like the mess that was your house on Tuesday afternoon, you go, what in the world have we done? What have we done? Oh, and we say to ourselves, that's it, that's it. I- I'm gonna be content with what I have and I'm gonna realize, in fact, I have too much and I can get rid of stuff and I'm gonna be content. I'm gonna be content with less. I'm gonna be content with what I got and that's, 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 that's what I need to do. You're right, pastor, we'll be content. But let me tell you, let me make sure we understand what Paul's about Paul's teaching on contentment here by going back to the man in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12 because there's something stunning that actually happens in this parable. And I, I got this point from a guy named Brian Habig as a pastor in Greenville. He pointed this out in a sermon. He said, in Luke chapter 12, what happens is this man who has a great bumper crop and he's at a place now where he can retire It's so grand, he has so many bumper crops that he can build bigger barns and he goes home and what does he say to himself? He says, self or soul, you have ample goods, now enjoy them. Now here's what should make your jaw drop in regards to contentment. The the contentment is to look at what what he says. What does he say there? What we think is contentment is to do exactly what this man did. What does he do? He says, that's it. I'm gonna be satisfied with what I have. I'm not gonna continue to to plant more fields. I'm not gonna try to get more and more and more. I'm simply gonna put what I've got and I'm gonna begin to enjoy my life. In other words, what he is saying is what we think of as contentment, which is this is what God has given me and so I'm just gonna be satisfied with what I've got. And it's to that that God says, you're a fool. Now what? He seems to be content. He's not continuing to plant fields. He's he's not, what's going on here? Well, the issue is this is that he says, I'm gonna sit back and I'm gonna enjoy what I have, I'm, but there's no mention of who he's, what, he's gonna enjoy, what he really needs to enjoy, which is God himself. You see, the place where God calls him, where Jesus calls him a fool is this. He says, my goodness, you've missed the point. Contentment is not found in, whether you, in your large estate or your small estate. Content, you've missed the boat entirely if your contentment is found in either of these things. That your contentment must be found in me. In me. You see what God is indictment on this man in the parable? He says, God comes to this man, he says, you have all these things, but you are not rich towards God. What does that phrase, rich toward God, mean? Well, you think about a man and woman who fall in love. And they'll look at each other and they'll say, no matter, no matter what, it doesn't matter if we're rich or we're poor, it doesn't matter if there's nobody else who likes us in the world, but we are rich in love because we have one another. And this is what God is saying here. You can, you can say it, we've downsized, you might say, my goodness, we've got a six-bedroom, three-bath house, and you know what? We're, it's, time to, it's time to enjoy life, and so we're gonna settle down, and we're gonna simplify, and we're gonna be content with less, and so we're gonna settle down into a three-bedroom, two-bath, and then we're gonna live the good life, a life of cleanliness and simplicity and space, and yet, once again, where are you finding your joy and your contentment? Is it in the Lord's? 
No. No. You're saying we're rich. We're rich in even these things. We can consider this a three-bedroom, two-bath house as riches. But God's saying, no, 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 you've missed the point entirely. Your richness is, is riches found in me. God is against anything in your life, whether it be a large bank account or a small one, that would stand in the way of you finding contentment in him and him alone. And by the way, as we come to the end of this series of the Ten Commandments, here's the genius of the structure of the Ten Commandments. That the first commandment and the 10th commandment are actually brackets of the 10 commandments saying the exact same thing. Martin Luther pointed this out in his own commentary on the 10 commandments where he says this, that covetousness is simply the first commandment against idolatry now stated in more personal terms. In fact, Paul says this directly twice. In Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 3, 5, I already read them, right? That covenant is idolatry. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What is covenant? Having an idol. Having a god before God. Having a false god before the true God. In other words, both the first and the last commandments are basically saying this. Put God first. Make him the number one affection, the number one attraction of your life. Make him the central thing that captures your imagination. Make his love the basis and the foundation for your life. In other words, the Ten Commandments begin and end with God saying, freedom for life, joy in life is found not in anything else, not in any false god, not in any pleasure of this world. Freedom and joy in life is found in me and me alone. This is why the summary of the Ten Commandments is what? The whole law is what? You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength with every part of who you are. This is why it is so gracious for God to instill in us as human beings an unquenchable thirst, an unsatisfied longing, a dissatisfaction with life and our stuff and our possessions and our place until we have found satisfaction that only the only thing that will satisfy us eternally, which is God himself. So how do we get there? How do you get there? How do you get to a place of contentment finally? Okay, yeah, I'm supposed to go from covetousness to contentment in God. How do you find that you're content in the Lord's? Well, here's what Paul, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter four, verse 11? I have learned to be content. So I have good news and I have bad news for you. The good news is this, for all you discontent people, you can become content. That's the good news. Here's the bad news, you have to learn. You have to learn. And then what does Paul go on to say? What's the classroom for learning how to be content? It's the long road of life, isn't it? What does he say? He says, I have learned to be content no matter what my circumstances. What is Paul's classroom? It is the adversity of poverty and it's the adversity of prosperity. And what we, what we learn over the course of our life more and more and more is, is that our prosperity will not satisfy us. And that is a difficult, perhaps that might be a more difficult lesson to learn than the other lesson, which is, man, when I'm impoverished, God is all I need. We learn these things. And what did he learn in the midst of his poverty and prosperity? Verse 13, the very famous passage, right? Every FCA has this plastered somewhere. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Strengthens me for what? For victory in the game? For defeating the, the, the defensive lineman in front of me? For outrunning the opponent when I'm exhausted, still actually having the energy to do something? No, I find strength in the Lord to actually be content in this world. That's what he's saying. That's the miracle. 
This is the exact same thing that David says in Psalm chapter 73. In Psalm chapter 73, it begins this way. David says this, my foot almost slipped. Why? Because I envied the wicked, because I saw how great their life was. Their life was awesome, but then he ends this way. Psalm 73, verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength. Philippians 4, 13, God is the strength of my heart and what? And my portion forever. How do you become a person who is content is you find your contentment ultimately in God as your portion. He is my portion. What is the secret to finding contentment in this life? Having Christ as your strength, as your satisfaction, as your fulfillment, as your joy and your purpose. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because in Christ, I have every privilege and benefit that I could ever, ever want. And these benefits are yours. You have him. You have him. Matt White um, was a baseball player for the University of Clemson and um, then went on to be drafted into the uh, Major League Baseball, it, but he was a very minor player. I mean, didn't, he kind of bounced around the major leagues, played for Seattle, Cleveland, a few other places. He made a little bit of money because, you know, as a professional athlete, you can make some money. But he had a, he had a relative, actually, a grandmother who um, got sick. And, and she had a piece of property in Massachusetts, which is this kind of this, this awful kind of fairly scraggly piece of property that no one had ever really found anything to do with. But in order to help his grandmother, no one felt like the land was worth much, but he gave her, he, he bought it from her for $50,000 so that she would be able to pay more of her medical bills. So he buys this piece of family land to make sure that she's monetized for her medical needs. And he thought, maybe, maybe one day I might be able to build a house on this property but the, the, he, he sends uh, people out there to survey the property to see if a, where a, the best place for a home could be built. And they come back to him and they say, you can't build a house anywhere on this property. Nowhere. So the, the, the property was so hard and rocky that it made it difficult for them to find any kind of ground where they could put a house on. And so he brought in a genealogist to study the land more, more specifically and what kind of rock formations were on this property. And it was found, it was found that the, the, the geologist came back to him and said that what was on his property was this thing called Goshen stone. It's a form of mica and is used in landscaping and porches and walkways and it sells for $100 a ton. Well, in the survey of the property, they found that there were 24 million tons of this in the land. The property that he bought for $50,000 was worth $2.4 billion in value. Now, when you hear a story like that, what do you think? Why doesn't that happen to me? <laughs> Why can't I be like the Clampets and shoot at a raccoon or something and oil comes up instead of just Georgia red clay? <laughs> What's the point? It has happened to you. It has happened to you. Jesus, Jesus was what? What does Isaiah say? Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. He was the pearl of great price that was thrown away and he has been given to you. And if you have Jesus, you have the pearl of great price. You have the thing that the rest of the world is longing for. God himself. If you belong to Jesus, then that should be enough because he is enough. And when you learn this, like Paul did, and you begin to understand that if you're lacking something in this world, if there's something out there that you desire and you honestly desire, it doesn't necessarily be a sin that you desire, but if there's something in this world that you desire, that lacking it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. 
Perhaps it means that God loves you so much that he won't give you that thing because he longs for your joy to be found in him and him alone first. Because contentment cannot come by gaining any one thing unless that one thing is God himself. Why is, how does David say it, right? Psalm 27, verse four, the one thing I desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord's. That's what Johnny Erickson Tata learned. You guys know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata? She's become famous in the evangelical world over the last three to four decades. She was a beautiful young woman. She was a great artist, active, until one day she jumped into a lake and broke her neck. She says, no injured person has ever been prayed for like I was. People would lay hands on her for years. For decades, people have been praying for he, her healing. She has been anointed for healing. Everywhere she goes, every Pentecostal church she ever walks into, they think this will be the place that you'll finally be healed. 30 years. And yet after 30 years, she's still a quadriplegic. Why? And her answer is this. She said, I'm still a quadriplegic because God loves me. Because God wants me to be content in him. Would you say that? Could you say that? Would you make that your prayer for 2019? That you would pray the dangerous prayer for this coming year. (laughs) Here's the dangerous prayer. Lord, teach me that all I need is you. Now that is a dangerous prayer. That is a dangerous prayer. As Mother Teresa says, you will not know that God is all you need until God is all you have. That is a dangerous prayer. Teach me that what I need is you, that no matter what life throws at you, no matter what you have, what you, have would you, you could say with Paul that God is my strength, God is my significance, God is my security. Like David said, God is my portion. God is my portion. That when you look at life, you say, why don't I have the spouse? Either a spouse at all or the spouse I wanted. God is the portion. God is my strength and he is my portion. Why don't I have the job that I desire? The job that would make me feel significant and give me a place of uh, a financial status of security, God is my portion. God is my portion. Like David, would you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He brings me into his house and he's gonna overflow my cup. There's a song that I love and win with this. Man, three points in a poem, Right? It's a great song. It's so simple. I don't necessarily know who wrote it, but I know the person who popularized it for me was a guy named Fernando Ortega. It's a song called Give Me Jesus. And there's the line in that song, the chorus of the song is this. You can have all this world. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Man, would you make that your prayer in 2019? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I stand before you as we confessed earlier. Lord, I am a covetous man. I'm a man full of envy. So gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that my eyes would be turned away from the things of this world, from the place of prominence and power and position and possession, and that I would look to the person, Jesus. 
Lord, would you be all that I want? Lord, I, I pray the simple prayer that was prayed there. And, I, I, and I'll lead by praying the dangerous prayer. Gracious Father, I pray that in 2019 you would teach me that all I need is you. Teach me that all I need is you. Oh, Lord, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus.